Hey folks, welcome back to the DC3 cast. My name is Brian. With me, as always, is Vince. We are without Zach this week, but we are going to soldier on and do our new comics roundup for, I guess it's for like uh, late August and September and early October. I'm not even sure exactly when these came out. We, were, we, we have sort of four different things we're going to talk about tonight. The first being the finale to Joshua Williamson's The Flash, The Flash number 762, written by Williamson, illustrated by Howard Porter. We've talked about Speed Metal, the the death metal tie-in that sort of acts as a sister piece to this, but just sort of taken on its own for a second. How do you think Williamson stuck the landing of his run? I think it was good. Um, Falling short of great, which I think is the story for basically the entire 100 issue run. Um, And that's not knocking Williamson at all, because I think he did a tremendous job. I think there's, there's lots of things that go into a hundred issue run on a character. Um, that anyone could write and have it fall short of great. And I'm talking about like things like editorial interference, uh, unnecessary crossover delays to sort of delays in storytelling to sort of make things line up in the greater narrative. All of that stuff played a factor here. Um, but on the whole, I'm really happy with, with where this ended. I think maybe it's, it ended on just a tad of a kind of generic too, too neatly tied ending, you know? Sure. Um, but there were lots of nice little, just like the rest of Williamson's run, there were lots of nice little moments in here. And he, de- he definitely nailed lots of character beats, um, you know, gave Barry ultimately a victory in the end and something something of a release and i think like he'd been building to that for a while um and and i think i think he did uh, a nice job here would would you agree yeah i i think that this is a tough well first of all this is this run has been going on for so long it's really hard to I think because we read comics in this sort of weekly mode that we can forget just how how sprawling this is. Like this started before Trump was elected. Mm-hmm. Right? This this started almost, you know, o- over 4 years ago now. There is so much in this run that he was going for that there was an attempt to wrap up. And some of that I thought was wrapped up very very well. Like you said, I think all of the character moments were were pretty flawless here. I, I you know the the big showdown that happens in the issue is between Barry and Eobard Thawne, you know the uh, the Reverse Flash, and I thought that the way Williamson handled that particularly was really inspired and and great. Even if I I understand if somebody might read that and think that it was maybe a little bit of a generic happy ending. I think that for the character, it felt very earned. And I think that Williamson did a, a really, really nice job of, of of wrapping up Barry and Eobard's story in a place where 
I mean, this is comics, so it's not going to happen. But if this was the end of the reverse Flash, it would feel like a suitable ending to that character. Mm-hmm. And even though the reverse Flash has not been the villain throughout, I mean, you know, he's he's shown up here and there, but he has not. It, it hasn't been like, you know, like Tom King's Batman was a Bane story in so much as it was a Batman story. This has not been uh, a reverse Flash story, but I think that he, Williamson did a really fine job of tying up the that story and making it a logical point to pause the reverse flash for a while um i think there's a lot of stuff in this issue that if it had come a little bit earlier or if there had been a little bit more time for it to sort of marinate maybe would have felt a little better like i love 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 the sort of flash family barbecue at the end of this Mm-hmm. But I wish that we had been given more with those characters before this. Those characters haven't been in this book that long. And so I think that for old timers like me who know those characters and love seeing them together, that was a poignant moment. I don't know for a relatively new Flash fan if that moment landed at all. You know? Yeah, I don't, yeah. Yeah, I guess I guess I think it did, but like I said, it came off it it still came off a little generic to me. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I, th- I think part of why it came off generic is because it didn't have a hundred issues building to it. Yeah, you know. It yeah, felt, I think I think that's right. Yeah. It felt like a generic ending, and I think you know. I mean, I think it's issue five or so is when Jay Garrick is first teased in this book. You know, it was it. We were supposed to be getting, I think, a lot of this a lot earlier, and I don't know if when this was pitched, I don't know if um, Heroes in Crisis was supposed to be a thing, so I don't know if if Wally was supposed to have a bigger piece in all of this. You know, it's so hard to know exactly what this book was supposed to be because I think of all of the of all the books that have been soldiering on since the beginning. This is the one that's had the most monkey wrenches thrown into it. Whether it was like the button stuff and then the the doomsday clock taking forever and if it was, you know, the the pause on the JSA's return or whether it was um you know, Heroes in Crisis, there's just so much that was thrown in Williamson's way here. And I wonder if when I go back and reread this run eventually, if it will feel that way when I reread it or if it felt that way, because when we were reading it initially, we knew, we knew what was going on like in, in the DC house, right? Like we were aware that heroes in crisis was happening. We were aware that dooms of hell was happening, et cetera, et cetera. And so I I wonder if those things will still feel, I wonder if the run will still feel a, a little bit disjointed or like it took longer to get going than it should have. Or if that's just a, a function of us reading Bleeding Cool, essentially. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think it makes perfect sense. Uh, obviously, we have not read every Flash comic. You have not done your Flash read-through yet. I'm sure it's coming one of these days. But uh, where do you rank uh, this Flash run among the Flash runs that you have read or you're familiar with? Boy, 
I, I haven't I haven't read all of it. I haven't. I, so I would say behind John's, and I haven't read all of it, but I've I've heard enough and I've read enough of it to think that maybe it's also behind Mark Wade. But I but otherwise it's right there, and I think I think it's because you have a quality writer, and anytime you let a quality writer write on a book for this long you're you're gonna end up with something that will rank near the top i feel like there's um you know this has got to be like the longest run with the character ever right i would think no i think both wade and johns did more than 100 issues really did they did that's oh that's Hang insane on. keep talking I'm... for a second let me look this up well, yeah, I just, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's very, very good, but I think it's, I think it's behind those two. And I think, you know, unfortunately we're, we're in a, the, the post rebirth landscape for good and bad was really about, um, covering all the classic ground with these characters and returning certain things to the way that they were before or the way that you generally classically think of them. Yeah. Whereas both Wade and John's their long runs not only were they really well written but they did a lot to introduce new elements to the characters um tapestry new villains or reinterpretations of old villains and I feel like as good as Williamson's run was a lot of it was just like put playing greatest hits you know i can't think of things besides godspeed which is essentially a a care i'm sure the character will live on in some fashion but but was really designed to just be uh, a mechanism that kind of began and ended in within williamson's run right um that that didn't add much at this point to the the greater tapestry at DC. Other than that, it was a lot of just, uh, you know, Hey, remember the rogues? Here's a couple of arcs about them. Here's, you know, just re- returning to things and not necessarily adding these landscape changing things that, that, you know, maybe John's is known for. So Wade wrote a- about a hundred to the flash. It looks like, um, okay. but he also wrote something like 60 issues of impulse. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Or rather, it looks like it's closer to forty issues of impulse. But you know, so, sort of, if you take that all together as a, as a big flash run, yeah, you know. And I I think I was misspeaking about John's doing a hundred issues. Um, but I mean, to to me, it's it's right up there with those two runs also, and, and those seem to be pretty much the consensus post crisis flash runs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think Williamson's right there. I, I, I do wonder, like I said before, I wonder how this will read differently in a couple of years when I reread this run. And I also wonder how... Like, Godspeed is already part of the Flash TV series. And I wonder if this will be... I wonder if that character will wind up being a touchstone for a lot of people the way that... I don't know, insert DC character here was, you know, for, for me when I was, when I was that age, when I was just getting into comics or whatever, I wonder if, if, if for folks that haven't read a lot of flash stuff, if this run will read as revelatory 
whereas we sort of read it differently because we've read a lot of Flash comics before. Yeah, I'm sure that's... Yeah. Yeah, that definitely plays a part, I'm sure. I mean, when you think about it, the New 52 Flash was, was Barry Allen, but I don't know, aside from the art in the first arc when Francis Manipal was drawing it, was there anything really memorable memorable about that Flash run? Oh, absolutely not. No, no. And that, that art was the only thing, really. The, the story, I couldn't tell you a single thing about. Um, you know, I was on I was on Robots from Tomorrow this week with, with our buddy Greg. And Humble brag. No, I, <laughs> this is, there's a point to this, but he... He asked me something about, you know, do you have any advice for people who are reading long runs of comics, you know, kind of poking fun at my predilection for reading a thousand issues of something. And I said, well, first of all, don't do that. But (laughs) also, um, if you've read like when you're reading like Golden Age stories, if you get to one where you feel like you've read it before, that's a just stop. Stop reading the Golden Age there and just skip to what the Silver Age because you have read it before and you will read it again, you know. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, you read enough superhero comics. That, I mean, this isn't Shakespeare, right? Like we read, you know, 10 issues of new comics a week searching for that one great issue a week, right? Um, by and large, everything else is just, you know, mid-tier to good-tier superhero comic booking, right? Just, like, solid storytelling that doesn't break any new ground or anything. And uh, unfortunately, I think, like, what I said about the Golden Age applies to any age of comics once you've read enough of them. Like, we've read all this stuff before, you know? This just happened to be a, a very solid version of the classic hero's journey or whatever somebody who hasn't read thousands of superhero comics in their life probably will feel differently they they probably will like you said feel like it's more revelatory i don't think that's an insult i just think that's the nature of the that's the nature of the thing what i'm trying to say is the show is over (laughs) we're done (laughs) zach takes one week off and the show collapses yeah I, uh, I don't want to go on without him. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I think all of that's very fair. Um, I guess here's here's my last question I wanted to ask about this. We had interviewed Josh Williamson at New York Comic Con. Now it was two years ago. And we asked him like what he wanted to bring to Barry Allen. And his answer was a personality, mm-hmm. which I thought was a pretty bold answer. Um for a DC sanctioned interview, actually, I, I, don't, I maybe that one wasn't DC sanctioned, but um, <laughs> you know, I, I just felt like that was that was a, a rare bit of honesty from when you sometimes talk to creators and and they just they aren't that that forthcoming with things. Do you think that Williamson succeeded in his desire to give Barry a personality? <sighs> yes. But yes, but it's also I'm gonna use the word again. It's it's also kind of a generic personality, <laughs> you know. Like to me, he's still. 
and I don't. This sounds like I'm ripping on the run, which I not. I, I really enjoyed it, and I think Williamson's incredibly talented. I think it was a good run. It's a it's a a solid superhero comic. It has been something I've consistently enjoyed reading over the last four years. So I don't want to make it sound like that, but like at the end of the day, Barry Allen is still like milk toast white bread nice guy <laughs> you know yeah there is heart there there is heart there where like you know where he briefly talks to like the ghost of his mom in his kitchen like if you call that personality then then fine then yes you know i i do i think he's there he's not just some generic golden age hero who i'm here to save the day and then rushes off you know there's a little more going on than that but it's it's not you know how would I describe it to somebody who doesn't know who Barry Allen is? Just a nice chum. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I don't think that I don't think that it was for lack of trying that Barry maybe didn't get this, you know, total personality makeover. But you also can't really do a total personality makeover. No, you can't. How can yeah, then he's not Barry Allen anymore. Right. If all of a sudden he if all of a sudden he's wacky, you know, like <laughs> then you got people saying, "Well, that's that's Wally," even though it's not that's not really Wally either. That's just a generic version of what Wally would be, like the wacky uh uh cut up, you know. Right, right. Yeah, so you're right. Like you can't you can't color outside those lines too much. Yeah. I think he did all he could do. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that he did for me was I think he tried to give Barry some personality that wasn't just cribbed from the Flash TV show. Like, my fear when he said that was like, oh, DC wants him to make comics Barry more like TV Barry. And while I think that Grant Gustin does a great job on the Flash and is an interesting version of Barry Allen whatever I don't I don't need to read a comic version of the Flash TV show so I'm glad it wasn't that uh, which is what mm -hmm. I feared it would be um, but yeah good job Josh and uh, I'm uh, he said that it won't be the last time he's writing the Flash family so I'm very excited to see what sort of Flash family book he gets in the future hopefully that's I think that still happens in the uh, post Dio landscape. Um, yeah. All right. Well, let, let's talk about two issues that are not super like uh, important to DC's sort of overall like uh, meta storyline, but were just really fun, and I think we had both been pretty hyped for these for a while. And that is the Legion of Superheroes numbers eight and nine. So I have the full list here of artists uh, who worked on these issues. Um, and oh, you uh, know I do. I know you do as well, but I have them right here. So um, do you want to read the first issues and I'll read the second issues or whatever? Sure. Do you want me to talk about which page they drew as well? No. For now, let's just let's just name the artist. So it was written by Brian Bendis and illustrated by. Go ahead. All right. Uh, Doc Shaner, uh, Jeff Lemire, Dustin Wynn, uh, Joel Jones, Michael Avon Oming, 
Liam Sharp, Andre Lima, uh, Arujo, Sanford Green, Cully Hamner, Yannick Paquette, Dan Hip, David Mack, Derek Robertson, Dan Jurgens, Bilkus Evely, uh, Fabio Moon, Mike Allred, Ryan Sook, Alex Maleev, John Timms, Duncan Rouleau. And the second issue was illustrated by David Marquez, Ryan Sook, Joe Quinones, Mike Grell, Ivan Reyes, Nick Darrington, James Harron, John Armita Jr., Nicola Scott, Art Adams, Jim Chung, Gary Frank, Tula Lote, Riley Rosmo, Gene Lewin Yang, Kevin Nolan, Michelle Fife, Jenny Frizen, Emmanuel Lupacchino, and Mitch Gerrids. You you don't get better than that. That is that is a murderer's row of comic art. The question is, Vincey. Mm-hmm. Did these issues hang together as comics, or did they feel just like the art jams that they were? Uh, I mean, I think it mostly felt like the art jam thing. <laughs> like, honestly, like, the story is not... I th- I think if any if everyone were being honest, I know th- that DC probably doesn't want anyone to say that, but I think if they were being honest, like, the, the plot is almost as thin as it gets. Um, like, I think there is something of a plot here, but I would say 70% of these pages is like, Hey, let's look at this audition tape for the Legion for this particular Legionnaire. Um, it's a clip show. (laughs) It's a clip show. It's a clip show for clips that didn't exist before these issues. Yeah. Right. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? I'm fine with that. If if every honestly, like I'm at the point in my life where going off of what I just talked about with the Flash, where like, um, how many six issue arcs about the rogues getting powered up and the Flash having to contain them or whatever can you do that show you anything new? You know. So. I don't really necessarily need too many stories like that anymore. If you made every issue of a comic a, a threadbare plot that was an excuse to pack 20 artists, some of which you will never see do work at DC again, probably, uh, into an issue, it, like if, if, if it's an excuse to do that, I'm all for it. Like I, I loved reading these, even though the plot is is barely hanging there by a thread. Yeah, I, I think that's I okay. That. Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with an issue like this, especially if the issue is being honest about what it is. And I think for the most part, this issue was being these issues were were being honest with what they were. You were not necessarily supposed to read this and think like, wow, this really furthers the story of the Legion. What this issue what these issues did was so the first, I guess, seven issues of the Legion of Superheroes was basically there to to throw you into the deep end and say, like, there are all these Legionnaires, you know, here's we're going to introduce you to a lot of them you're not going to necessarily remember who's who we're just going to get you into the the tone of legion and then these two issues give you a little bit of a spotlight on some of the characters maybe you missed the first time around but more than anything is just there to reinforce the sort of 
idea of the Legion being something that is of the United Planets, or rather, that works with the United Planets, but is not of the United Planets. Like, you're supposed to take away from it that there's autonomy there. And in the in issue eight, they say the word autonomy like 10 times on one page. It was a very Bendis page. Like, there's no way we can have autonomy. We have autonomy. Full autonomy? Like, just that kind of a, a thing. But yeah. you know, we're just supposed to get the idea of, here's how the Legion operates, and here's why you're supposed to care about how the Legion operates. To me, that's that was the purpose of these issues. And I think that it, it did a good job with those, um, if that was the purpose. Were there any pages that particularly stood out to you as favorites? Oh... Oh, I mean, they they were they were all so good. I mean, honestly, like every page, without exception, I think hit in its own particular way. There was no page that I got to, and I was like, this doesn't this doesn't stack up to the work that this artist does, or like this doesn't this doesn't fit with what they're going for here. Like, I, I think they pretty much nailed it across the board. Of course, my particular favorites were probably. Joel Jones doing Princess Projectra was pretty great, um, but she's my fave. Um, Mike Allred doing Pharaoh Lad is like a perfect yep. fit, I think. Um, and as far as the other issue goes, um, like the Nick Darrington page was great. Um, boy. Tula Lotes was like a very simple page, but like just what you would expect from her. Yeah, those are those are probably the big ones for me. Dan Dan Jurgens doing his like vintage Dan Jurgens kind of style. Like I'm always a sucker for that too. We, we know how much you love Dan Jurgens pencils on the show. I yeah, I love great artist. He is a great artist. Um. Some of my favorites were I really liked uh, Gene Yang's page, um, Michelle Fife's page, which was for uh, oh, I'm gonna fuck up the name. Is it Block? Block. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, love that page. Um, All Red's page, absolutely. I really liked Sanford Green's page quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Now here's my question. I I fucked up my notes here. Who did the page of the invisible character? That was that. Weirdly enough, that was it was Art Adams, wasn't it? It was Art Adams. Yeah, that's what I thought, and that's the only thing I was disappointed about. I thought I messed that up because because Bendis specifically said, like, when I interviewed him, that you know people heard Art Adams was doing this and they knew they had to step their game up. And I thought, but that's that's really kind of a cop out page. <laughs> well, I think doesn't he do the next page also though? No, he does one page. That's it. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. That's he, interesting. Yeah, so that was and and look, I get the goof there and that's funny. I feel like they could have they could have just as easily put anyone's name on that page and it it wouldn't have changed the artwork. I I I think that to get Art Adams to do a page of Legion is such a cool thing. It's a shame that was the page of Legion they got him to do. Mm-hmm. But I can't complain too much about that. If that's my biggest beef with the two issues, then I'm okay, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do you feel about 
Legion going forward because I, I'm really excited because I feel like, and maybe this is just me hopefully projecting, I feel like a lot of the preamble's out of the way now, and they can maybe get to telling a more serious Legion story. Do you agree with that? I don't. I don't know if that's. I don't know if that's something Bendis is going to do with this. No, Art Adams does. Art that is not Art Adams' page. Art who's, Adams does does the page after. So who does that page then? They don't have anyone listed for. Oh, that okay. Page. That makes so me feel just, better. Okay. It's just a goof. That's why I thought my notes were off because I. I okay. That's I fine. thought he. I thought he did both pages. So my notes were off too, but okay. If you look at that page right after it, that's distinctly Art Adams. Okay. Because um, he's only listed as one page, that's why I was I was thinking that. Yeah. Uh, it would have been. I know it's cool to have the names all at the back. I would have loved to have had something on each page saying who the artist was. Yeah. A, a little corner box or something. But that's just me. Uh, so you don't think that Venice is ever going to tell a straightforward Legion story? <laughs> No, because I think I think the ser- I think the series will end before that actually happens, and I think he kind of knows that. I don't know why he'd want to come on the book and not do a big Legion story. Well, it's not that he doesn't want to. I just think that's the way comics go. Like I can't imagine a Legion of Superheroes comic um, these days lasting more than like eighteen issues, because that's just the nature of things. I, I don't disagree with you, but I think that if anybody is likely to get it past that, it's probably Bendis. I don't agree anymore. I don't think that that's. I don't think. I don't think that's in the cards. I'd be surprised. Hmm. I mean, he's bouncing on Superman. Like, that's not a hundred percent his choice. That's just what comics do these days. How many how many issues did he get on each of those? Twenty something. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, and then and then they said, "Hey, you want to do something else at this point? We need to we need to churn this." They're gonna churn this the same way. So I think. Well, I think part of me thinks that he. I don't know. I don't have any inside information or anything, but I think that he he kind of knows like, you know, books like this just don't last for long runs anymore. So. I'm going to fuck around and do weird shit like this. And I hope people dig it. And I do, but you know, I, I, I just think, I think that's his mindset with some of this stuff because you, you, you can't explain, you can't convince me that there's any sort of long game going on here. There well, just doesn't appear to be. Well, here's, here's my slight uh, retort to that. I think the difference between, Bendis on Superman and Bendis on Legion is that there would be a Superman book if Bendis wasn't at DC. I don't know if there'd be a Legion book if Bendis wasn't at DC. If you're going to publish a Legion of Superheroes book, this is sort of the best possible scenario from a company's standpoint of producing a Legion book. You have this superstar art uh, writer on it. You can You can circle in you know, lots of cool artists to do, whether it's one page or to do a two-issue arc or to do a one-issue, whatever it is, I think this is the way you make a Legion book work. And there hadn't been a Legion book since 2013 or 14, I think. And 
for a property that is so ingrained in the DC sort of uh, history, you ha you have to have a Legion book for a little while every 10 years or so. And I wouldn't be surprised if Legion is the breakout HBO Max series one day. Because I think that you can you can do a lot of the sort of hokey romance stuff that you can do on a show like Riverdale, but you're also doing it while flying around. Mm. And so Are they I've, putting Batman in that? <laughs> uh, there'll, there'll be Planet Gotham in that. Um, but, you know, I, I just think that, that if you're trying to keep the property alive, this is the way to do it. Now, if they don't care about keeping the property alive, that's a different story. But I, I think they, I think they do care about, about Legion as a, as an intellectual property. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I just can't. I just can't see it. I could be wrong. But I think if it was almost any other creator on almost any other book, I'd agree with you. I just feel uh -huh. like if you're gonna do Legion, this is this is the run to roll the dice on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Any other Legion Eight Nine thoughts? Um. Oh, Legion's Legion is selling surprisingly well. Is it? That's good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. If Comicron wasn't like impossible to navigate, I would uh, <laughs> expound on that. But but it's still doing pretty well. Is what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I also think that one of the benefits of doing Legion is that it's not beholden to any reboots that like happen in the main line because it's a thousand years later. Mm -hmm. So you're able to uh, you're able to shelter yourself a little bit from from the churn of like if there was a re if there was a Legion series running pre rebirth, it might have been the only series that could have continued its original numbering. Not original numbering. It's numbering from pre-rebirth, you know? Sure. Um, but, yeah, okay, let's let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the end of Joker War. Hello, we're the hosts of the Multiversity Manga Club podcast. I'm Emily. I'm Zach. And I'm Walter. Each month, we pick a manga to read and discuss among ourselves. Past books include Monster... A Silent Voice, and Pokemon Adventures. We also look back on the past month's installments of Weekly Shonen Jump, discussing the highs and lows from the Viz Anthology. We've even discussed notable manga adaptations like Netflix's Death Note. At the end of each episode, we announce next month's book club pick so you can read along with us. We're always open to suggestions for future books as well. So join us on the first Friday of every month on MultiversityComics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. And we are back to talk about the uh, the end of Joker War, the last three installments, starting with Batman '99, written by James Tynan the Fourth, illustrated by uh, Jorge Jimenez. So, my, Vince and I were talking about this before. We have a lot more to say about issue 100, but I just want to say that this issue, and it continues into 100. This is maybe the best Harley Quinn stuff we've ever gotten from a writing perspective. Like this, when she says to Batman, like, if he's going to beat you, I'm going to kill him. And there's no way around that. This has to end. 
I thought that gave Harley so much more pathos and it gave her something to do that isn't just being the sort of Amanda Connor version of the character, which is fun but ultimately goofy. I felt like this gave Harley some gravitas for the first time in a long time. Yeah, for sure. And that that definitely continues into issue 100 in a big way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think is just is so true about this entire um this entire run so far is just Tynan continues to show himself to be so adept at not just writing Bruce but writing the Bat family. And that extends all the way out to Harley here. Mhm. It's uh yeah. It's it's, it's very fun. Um, but Absolutely. But let's talk for a second about the about the Joker War special. So, um, do you have notes on all of these? I do. Yes. All right. Can you? I, my notes. I forgot to write down the creative teams. So, who did the the Bane story that begins the book? Uh, that was Tynion and Guillaume March. To me, this story is James Tynion showing, basically showing Tom King's ass for him. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Just saying, like, you fucked up the death of Alfred so badly, and here's why. And it's yeah. savage. I'm I was oh, oh man, maybe we're projecting, but I was a little surprised it was even published in this form. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's savage, isn't it? It is. It is. It's Man, timing's great. <laughs> yeah, for, the, for anyone who hasn't read this, first of all, I think most of this issue is very good, actually. I think most of the Joker War special is fun. Um, but this story, basically, Joker goes to Bane's cell, and he says, like, he's fucking around with him. He's going to kill him. He's not going to kill him. But then he says, here's what you did wrong. You took away the opportunity to really break Batman. The butler is all he had left. It was his only tether to reality. And you could have killed him in front of him, but you didn't do it. You didn't even have him on the phone when you did it. You did it in front of the boy. You made the boy think. He basically says, the boy's going to need therapy. Boo-hoo. It's this, like, savage takedown of how Tom King had no reason to kill Alfred there, which is something that we said. I know at least I said it. I did not like the buildup to, to his death. I didn't think it was worthwhile. And I think Tynion agrees, and it's it is like you said, it is surprising that it's in this book. Yeah, yeah, and that plot thread is to be continued in twenty twenty one. It says at the end, so it's yeah. kind of interesting that they're not done with that either. Yeah, but I think I think yeah, like I do think it's a I do think it was a waste, and I think like the entire city of Bane thing was almost a waste too. Cause like it, it never felt like a fully formed Gotham that Bane was in control of because we spent too much time on other concerns and Bruce spent too much time away. And that whole thing was just bungled, but I didn't like almost any of that run anyway. So, (laughs) you know, I'm bringing baggage I'm bringing that baggage too, you know, but like, man, yeah, he, he, he just, he rails on it in this. My favorite line isn't really one. I mean, I, I loved all the shots that he took, but Tanya wrote a great Joker line, 
which is he said uh, when he he says to Bane, "You look so stupid," and then he puts the mask on him and goes, "There, now you look stupid, and you're wearing your mask." <laughs> that, was a, <laughs> yeah. that was a legitimately funny line in a comic yeah. uh, where I feel like the Joker is very rarely actually funny. Yeah. Yes. But that was funny. Yes. That was great. Um, any other notes on that story? Nope. Okay, our second story was a Lucius and Luke Fox story. And uh, who who worked on this one, Vincey? Uh, it was John Ridley writing and uh, Olivier Corpel on art. What did you think of this story? Um, It was fine, but Lucius... Um, Lucius kind of going nutty on those Joker goons at the end <laughs> and and uh, it not being a problem was a little weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, he straight up kills self-defense, of course, but um, uh, yeah, he straight up kills a couple of Joker goons. Well, so he, um, he's infected with Joker toxin. Right, he's inf- he's still he's still f- infected, which we've seen all throughout the Joker War. Um, so obviously that gives him some plot leeway there, a little plot armor, but uh, but still a very like almost like okay, you couldn't figure out a different way to to do this. Yeah, because um, it's just it seems gratuitous to me. And this is very much part of the. Uh... This is like a tease for the John Ridley, Luke Fox Batman series coming next year. Yeah, but but let's be clear, it might not be Luke Fox. That's true. Yeah, it may not it's, be Luke Fox. It could, yeah, I mean it's it's looking here like it could be Tim Fox. Yes. Yeah. Um, I should have said the presumed Luke Fox story. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, overall I thought it was I thought it was fine. I thought it was a little bit um a little bit odd, like you said, about Lucius just like murdering some dudes, but that's okay. Um at first I actually thought that I was missing something because it didn't look at all like the Lucius Fox that we know. There were panels where he looked younger. <laughs> yeah. He looked like a younger man. Yes, he did. So I, I was I was a bit confused about that, but that's all right. Uh, the next story is a spoiler orphan story by Josh Williamson. And who drew this one? Yeah, this was David LaFuente. I loved this story. Yeah, this was magnificent. This was this was my shit. Uh, you know, hook me right into this one. Yeah. All this needed was Harper Rowe in it to be a <laughs> uh, a full boner bomb. Because... <laughs> wow, it, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I mean, because it was fun. Shut up. TMI, man. <laughs> Please. Um, no, I, I thought that this was just, it was a really good, um, it was a really good spoiler story, first and foremost. I think the Orphan, Orphan was definitely the, the, the lesser of the two characters in it, but I think Orphan works so well as that supporting character. Yes. Uh, I still hate that name, though. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm I'm hoping they allow them just both to be bad girls somehow. I I don't know. It was it was pretty fun at the end to see that like splash page. Yeah. With with the bat symbol on both of them. Mm-hmm. That was very cool. Yeah. And both of the, I think both of those costumes are great. I think, 
I think Cass's is better, but I have I I have such a personal connection to the the Steph Brown Batgirl costume that like I just think they're both great. And have you heard the rumor that Barbara Gordon's going to be Oracle in 2021? <sighs> yeah, but I don't where did that rumor come from? Uh I had seen it online a couple of places. Okay, well, because because and we'll get to it, but like she very much does assume that role in Batman 100. Yes. And so it it wouldn't surprise me if what that means is whoever was reporting on this rumor just, you know, got their wires crossed or it was a game of telephone. And and, and all it means is that, well, in issue 100, she assumes the Oracle role um, and will continue to to play that role while also being Batgirl, because that's what she does. In, in issue 100 she's both really and it wouldn't surprise me if that continues to be her role um i don't think she's going to be relegated solely to the oracle chair all right so this was uh, uh, the article i had first seen was uh uncle rich yeah and he said that um Oh, you know him though. He takes if, one thing a retailer set. Yeah, I know. I'm just trying to see if there weren't so many goddamn pop-ups. Oh no, sorry. In James Tynion's newsletter, he says one key element in this I can say that Barbara Gordon is going to be absolutely central character for the next year, uh, for the rest of this year and next year. If you've been missing Oracle in the Batverse like I have, I think you're going to be very excited where things go from here. Yeah. So I, I do think you're going to see her more in that Oracle role. But I, I kind of wish that she would just become I'm not saying you put her back in a wheelchair. I don't think there's any reason to shoot Barbara Gordon twice. No, they're um, not gonna do that. But That's... you know but I, I don't see any reason why she can't be Oracle. Yeah, I mean I think I, I think she will be both, but but okay. Yeah. yeah. We'll see. Uh next we get a poison ivy story, and who is that by? That is uh written by Sam Johns, art from Laura Braga. This was a big snooze for me. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's, it, I think it, I think it's well written enough, but it, it doesn't do anything new with Poison Ivy. It kind of reestablishes her as like a anti hero eco terrorist of Gotham again. Yeah. You know, it's it's kind of the thing that they've been working towards um since Heroes in Crisis. Yeah. Where like they're they're being very wishy-washy. They're not necessarily separating her from her uh relationship with with Harley, but the focus on her is more on, and I'm not trying to cover DC's ass there. Like I, I very much do think that they should be a couple. I'm not like one of the, uh, manic, like, uh, you know, poison Ivy stands online or anything like that. But like, you know, I, I think that's a, a, a good relationship that's well established at this point. I think it should continue. Um, but I do think they, they are clearly trying to not make her a villain again, necessarily, but make her that like loose cannon eco terrorist that that sort of puts puts plants ahead of people 
um, which I, I think also is a valid interpretation of the character. So don't some don't yell at me. I'm glad nobody can find me. <laughs> well, so I think there's there's a couple of things here that are that are worth discussing. The first is that I, I think that making her an eco terrorist is a very interesting angle they should go with. But there's no reason for her to just like literally burn those Joker goons to death. I feel like that read extra harsh because I can understand if they did something to hurt the plants that she would do that. But they just like wandered into her area and she just destroyed them for no good reason. And I feel like that doesn't that somewhat undermines her as a as a villain with a with a purpose. If the purpose is people who fuck with plants get fucked with, that's good writing. If she's an eco-terrorist who also has a really bad temper, I don't know if that's as interesting. Hmm. Um, that's my first note. My second note is that I think making her and Harley... I mean, for for so long, it seemed like Poison Ivy was the character who was the more logical, the more together of the two. And I think if I think if you read what Tynan's doing with Harley, they're somewhat flip-flopping that. I think that could be interesting. Um as a as a character beat for both characters um but i i think at this point we need to see a a stronger i think it would be better to have a harley and ivy book at this point because they're, they're just so much better together i think mm-hmm. yeah I, I can agree with that yeah well we have one more story in this and I, I, my, my overwhelming note of this reveals who the creative team was, which is written by James Tynan and illustrated by James Stoko. I just wrote in big capital letters, Stoko. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is this is basically just an excuse to let Stoko get nutty with it. Yes, um, there's almost the whole time. no story here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which it, which again, like playing off the Legion of Superheroes theme. If you're if you're gonna do it, just go ahead and do it. Like don't don't dress the don't no need to dress this up to be anything more than it is. Um, it's just an excuse for James Stoko to to draw a bunch of uh, carnage, bunch of bunch bunch of clown hunting, as it were. Um, the one plot thing that this establishes that will be important later is that the the people in the Gotham Narrows, like the regular citizens kind of lean out of their apartment windows and, and cheer clown hunter on as he does this, which you'll see later in the, in the Joker war stuff. Um, that that's like the one plot thing that you would need to know. Yes. That he is, uh, he's basically a neighborhood hero. Yeah. He's becoming a folk hero of some sort. Yeah. Other than that, it's just, man, it's just great to see Stoko do his thing. Um, I've said it so many times on this show. I wish DC would just, you know, hire these hire these artists more often. These like offbeat, generally indie style uh, artists to just go nutty more often in anthologies, even in even in the main titles, if they if they can figure out a reason why. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that this is a a pretty great use of Stoko's talents. But I also think there could have been a Clown Hunter one-shot written by Stoko. 
written or just yeah. illustrated by Stoko that let him do this for twenty pages instead of for five or whatever it is, and yep. that would have been equally great, or even even greater because you're getting four times the amount of Stoko. Um, but yeah, overall, a pretty fun issue. Mm-hmm. Is yeah, it just me, I, or, or is DC getting better at this stuff? Yes. Yes, they are. I think, you know, we've kind of tracked the, the trajectory of their holiday anthology issues and have talked about, you know, how, how much better and more refined those have gotten. Same thing with the, I think we thought all the 80th anniversary yes. issues were really well done, mm-hmm. especially compared to like, even seventy fifth anniversaries. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even just a year or two earlier, even something like Action One Thousand, like those eightieth anniversary issues were better than the thousandth issue of Action Comics. You know, by a long shot. Yeah, yeah. So like, they are getting really good at this. I think. I think they're curating these really well. I think, especially in the since the eightieth anniversary issues. They're doing a lot more with like, hey, this story, you can read it as a one-off, but there are elements of it that may carry forward into the next year, you know? Yeah. I think that's really good. I love when like back in the day when like annual issues mattered or like one shots mattered. Yeah. Um, I hope they return to that a little bit. Um, yeah, they're they're getting really good at this stuff and 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 getting people like Laura Braga and James Stokoe to to draw some of these is a big boon, I think. Yeah, I agree. All right, well, let's finish off Joker War with Batman number 100, written by James Tynan, illustrated by Jorge Jimenez. There are some backups. We'll get to those in a little bit, though. But what did you think of the finale of the Joker War, Vincey? I loved this issue a lot even though like my one bit of criticism will that will be that like even this tied up things with little too neat of a bow for me um there are things there are things that will play into next year in Tynion's run so like i'm not saying he completely closed everything off i'm just saying like the conflict between bruce and the joker <laughs> basically ends in the most generic Batman way possible um, where, where there's, there's not a doubt in your mind by the time this comic is over that the Joker's the Joker's back, baby. (laughs) (laughs) He's going to, he's going to show back up in three months and in the comic, they will unironically have a line in there about like, man, it's been a while since we've seen (laughs) the Joker, you know, (laughs) like, they will the Poochie three months line. will be too long yeah yes exactly yes yes so like that's what i'm talking about or also just like um uh the clown hunter thing where like obviously that, that there's more they can do with that but like batman batman at least ties that off a little bit um same thing with Harley, there's a little bit of of finality there. Not finality, but like, you know, this arc she was on pretty much clearly comes to an end here, I'm sure, until the next time the Joker pops up again. Um, 
and and I guess I guess that's good for a, a hundred issue uh, spectacular because there are going to be people that pick this up that are picking up you know with Batman here for the first time in a while or ever even though it's the last issue of a of an arc you know there will be people that that buy it just because it's a hundred um, and so tying it up's not bad and I think it's good to Jorge Jimenez drew the whole thing and. Um, and made it to the end, and it's nice to have that this in a package now that you can put on your shelf, and it is tied off mostly at the end. So I, there's good, there's good and bad to that. I, I like my superheroes to be, I like arcs to end a little ambiguous or a little messy, messier than this, you know. But sure. that being that being said, I loved everything that happened in this issue. Really, um, how so about I, you? Well, I, I wonder. Just going going back to your point before I move off of it, I wonder how much of that. Is because, and again, this is all like rumor and innuendo, but I wonder how much of this was because Batman was supposed to reset with 5G. Oh, sure. How, how, uh, this yeah. was, this was written as, the, as a cap off for Bruce for a while. Does that epilogue with the Joker even exist if, if uh, this would have gone the way that they were planning? Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great point. That makes perfect sense. I hadn't thought about it like that. That's actually one of the first things I thought of when I read this was like just how differently I am taking this, knowing that Batman 101 is out in a week and a half or whatever it is, you know, yeah. versus it being the the pause point for the story for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I thought this issue was was quite good. I thought the idea of the Joker reanimating uh, Alfred was like it, it just borders on being comical, twisted Joker. Like, oh, I can't believe he did that, that dang Joker. But it's also, I think Tynion and Jimenez did a really good job in showing, even though Bruce doesn't really lose his shit, how close he is to losing his shit over this. Mm hmm. I thought that was handled very well. Um, I thought the Harley stuff in this issue was really, really good again. Just Tynion is doing such a bang-up job with these characters. It's just it's so nice to see. Um, I liked the, 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 the limited stuff we got with the Bat family. Oh, his Dick Grayson rocks. Yes. Absolutely. Um. Yeah, it, it this issue. If this was, I get the sense that that Tynion did better than anyone thought he would do on this book, and that's maybe part of the reason why he's continuing on it for a little bit longer is because he just exceeded expectations on it. And I think if you look at this issue, it's pretty clear to see why folks would think that he he did so well because there, there is just there, there's really not, there really aren't any missed opportunities in this book. I feel like, and that's, that's rare for a, for a a comic like this. I can understand your position of maybe it was tied up a little bit into need of a package. And and I won't disagree with that because I think that's a, a very valid point. However, I think that if you're just looking at this as a, as a Batman and Joker story, I don't remember the last time 
somebody not named Grant Morrison wrote a Batman Joker story, I enjoyed this much. Yeah, that's right. No offense to our, to our boy Scotty, but I don't think that I, I really liked what he did with was it Endgame was that the name of the story he did where where yeah. Batman and the Joker both lose, both lose their memories. I liked that story quite a bit, but that's I like this more. I think this is about the best Joker story we've got since Morrison, and, and I would say you include it with Morrison in the best Joker stories maybe since Death in the Family? Yeah. Well, you can't beat the Joker becoming the Sultan of uh, Saudi Arabia. So. <laughs> of course not. Um, but no, I mean, I, I just think you, you have to... We have to give credit where credit is due to Tynion here. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, he, uh, I don't know if I, maybe I said this on the last DC, uh, podcast when we talked about something he wrote, but like, I think he's, I think he was a great writer already, but I think he's upped his game so much in the last couple of years. And I think like stuff like justice league dark he he gets a little caught up too much in in the in the world building and the the exposition on stories like that but there's still there's still solid concepts they just end up being a little dry because of that the bat stuff he's been writing since detective is all so on point it's it's almost like he can't make a bad choice when it comes to the bat family stuff it's insane how good his track record is with this stuff. And the proof is in the pudding because like, if I never read another Batman comic, as long as I lived, that would be fine with me. Yep. <laughs> but at this point, Tynion is like the one exception because his stuff still excites me. And I was down a little bit on it at the start of Joker war because I didn't think it was living up yet to what came uh, immediately before it um, with the designer stuff. But that it picked up really quickly. And I think by like this, I love this issue. I mean, this is, this is bat family to the hilt. It's the shit I love. And, and he's doing it right now. And no, nobody else is everybody else who touches Batman these days is, mired in this idea of Batman as as the Dark Knight or as something serious. And I think Tynion just strikes all the different notes of Batman. You know? Batman smiles and I a bunch of sounding times. like a I'm sounding like a basic bitch by saying this because like there's people who are just like, I just want my superhero to smile all the time and that that'll make me happy. That's not that's not what I mean, but like Batman should be peppering in smiles once in a while, you know, when he's t when he's in that uh, hospital room with Harley and he lets out a grin and he agrees with her on something like for many writers, that's unheard of. Yep. But that's Batman. You know, Batman's Batman's got a grin in him somewhere. You know, he is 
not just the Dark Knight, but he's part of the dynamic duo who was goofy as hell back in the day, <laughs> you know? And there, there has to be room for a little bit of that. And I think Tynion totally gets it. Yeah, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I wonder if now that he's going to be on the book for a little bit longer, if we're going to see some of his Detective Comics stuff come back into play. Like, I just want to see more Clayface stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I want to see more um, spoiler stuff. I, I want all that stuff. The idea of... I love that Josh Williamson wrote that spoiler story. I wonder if he would do a... Like, to me, you do a new Birds of Prey book with with Harper Rowe, spoiler, and Orphan. Yeah. Just take my money, DC. Take it. <laughs> take it, please. Um, but yeah, uh, Joker War ended exceptionally well. I'm all I, I couldn't be happier with it for a, as a reader, and uh, I'm excited to see where Tiny goes from here. Though I will say, uh, going to those uh, sort of backups we see, I'm not necessarily thrilled to get more Cloud Hunter stuff. Yeah. But prove me wrong. Yeah. Yeah. He has before. Yeah. And that Joker tease is patently absurd. Yeah. That's, I mean, I guess you're contractually obligated to make sure everyone understands he's not dead. I don't know. (laughs) Anything else to say about Joker War? No. I think that's good. Well, let's move on to our finale. Oh, Rorsch- Lord. Rorschach, baby. Rorschach number one. By Tom King and Jorge Fornes. So- or Jorge Fornes. <laughs> yes. To quote Livia Soprano, poor you. Um, so I want to say something that, that I think you might disagree with. And that's okay. Um. I, I think that for the first, let's say, half of this story, I thought King was doing something that I could not... I wasn't necessarily going to love it, but I could sort of get behind it. It reminded me a little bit of um, something like a, a 70s Robert Redford kind of like uh detective Par- story parallax view yeah yeah stuff like that yeah, yeah. Like, and i you know i'm i'm into that sort of stuff right that th- that appeals to me i like that and i thought okay well this this isn't so terrible and then of course you know every few pages you're reminded it's a king story and you know you gotta shake that off a little bit but but overall i didn't think it was so bad and i even thought I thought it was very interesting that they referenced the Watchmen TV show in this. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that's good or bad. I, I just think it's it's interesting that they would consider that show part of the canon of this story. Um, but to me, the way that this book ended, it was just like the loudest, wettest fart I've ever heard in my life. Oh, dude. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to do you want to explain that? 
Yeah. Well, so okay. So, so the story is about there. There's a there's a rally that's going on for the 2020 presidential election for Redford versus this this new um this this new challenger that who gives a shit. Turley. And, yeah. Yeah. And at this event, there is a uh, a sniper is spotted. And it turns out that the sniper is someone dressed as Rorschach, and he has a female accomplice with him. And we don't know who this person is. And the, like I said, the first two thirds of the book or so are are this detective or this whoever he is, basically trying to get information to figure out who this person is. And it turns out this person is like this this comic artist from the seventies. Who um who's been like a recluse this whole time blah blah blah, except that <laughs> somebody like a, a collector had bribed a guard at the prison where Rorschach was taken, and so he has Rorschach's fingerprints because this guy has no prints on record, and they'll check him out, and would you believe it? It matches Kovac's fingerprints. And maybe just maybe the real Rorschach was somehow hanging around in the 35 years after Watchmen. And uh, would you believe that I don't give a shit and ever want to know whether that <laughs> is true or not? <sighs> um. I don't have too much to say about this. I think, you know, anybody who's been listening to our show for long enough probably guessed how I would feel about this and 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 you know, I'm I don't want to climb up my own ass here any more than than I'm destined to anyway. But <laughs> just a couple things that really bugged me about this. Um I part of the thing that really bothers me when writers take on a Watchmen or Watchmen adjacent or even something that even just tangentially references the style of comic that Watchmen is, is that they always have to put endless winks at the reader that like, hey, remember this from Watchmen that go beyond just the plot itself. And to me, it's so annoying. It's taking this this piece of work um, that was like twelve, you know, pretty self-contained issues of something that has all this stuff that, like, the readers of the original Watchmen know as totems or whatever that don't really have any meaning outside of being part of Watchmen. But then you put them in other works and you're trying to imbue them with some kind of meaning beyond that. Or even if you're not trying that, it, it looks like you are. And specifically what I'm talking about is like the, the biggest example, although there are a few in this, is the billboard at the end for Heinz Baked Beans. Yep. Okay. At the beginning of Watchmen, you see Rorschach eating a can of baked beans uh, in Night Owl's house, and it's supposed to be disgusting. He's re- he's eating these beans out of a straight out of a can. He's dripping all over his face. 
he's a he's basically a sloppy disgusting guy like that's it's it's additive to his character but they have to put some jokey thing in there about like look ah baked beans remember that <laughs> you know and it shouldn't bother me as much as it does except that it's so it's so overdone and they know what they're doing and it it's 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 seeing the gears turning on something that shouldn't be turning <laughs> uh when I read the when I read the, the the words or the title Pontius Pirate, my eyes rolled out of my head and out of my house and into the street and got ran over by a bus. See, I actually and laughed I'm, at that. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, but it's like, but it's also like, come on, <laughs> you know. The, and it, it's just the issue is just full of shit like that, and and but the the, the worst thing about it is that it's not even that deep, like. I read something on Bleeding Cool, and again, I always take everything I read on that godforsaken website with a grain of salt about, like, is this artist character that they're talking about in this series, is it supposed to be a stand-in for Alan Moore, this Will Meyerson? Mm-hmm. Oh, he's a recluse. He's out of comics, whatever. He sits around drawing his own comics and sending them. He's got these devoted fans that send him letters. Well... To me, that sounds like Ditko. <laughs> yeah. Like that's, you know, like I don't know where they get Alan Moore other than they're fixated on this. Like that is very much how Ditko has lived. Had for, lived. R.I.P. Had, had, had lived for the longest time, um, you know, late in his life. And he's also the creator of the question, right? So I was like, going to say, he's the question co-creator. That seems yeah. like a pretty obvious parallel here. Right. And Tom King has brought him up in every interview. I can see why, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Tom King is clearly trying to tell the reader that like, hey, look what I'm going for here, you know. And I think that that's lame, too, because I think like. (sighs) I don't know. I, I mean, I know I know Steve Ditko had some had some weird Randy in politics or whatever, but like. That doesn't really seem to line up with this character here exactly either um they never get they don't get specific enough to to make the ideology kind of line up and i think that that's my problem with tom king whenever tom king tries to get political he does not go far enough and that that extends to this he called this an angry comic i don't get any of that Maybe it's coming, but yeah, I'm not going to. I was going to say this first issue certainly doesn't feel angry to me. It's nothing. It's nothing. I think if he just says it's political, he just thinks that that's angry. He does a lot of stuff in interviews where he talks about how angry he is and how crazy everything is. And if you read between the lines, you can assume that what he means is like there's a Cheeto in the White House, <laughs> but but a dang he, Cheeto. <laughs> He'll never come out and say that directly, even if even if he'll never be as direct about it as you could be. And I don't know whether that's like he doesn't want to alienate certain people, even if they even if they know what he's talking about, as long as he doesn't come out and say it. But he's not saying anything in this work either. I have the same complaint about Strange Adventures, which 
I've read all. I don't know if I'm going to stick with Rorschach because I give even less of a shit about this. This shouldn't even be happening. But um, with Strange Adventures, like he talked a lot about his, you know, role in the CIA or whatever and coming back and, you know, being accused of certain things or feeling differently about his time over there after time had passed. You know, there was the one person, the one uh, quote unquote journalist, comics journalist um, that tried to claim that maybe he didn't even really have any CIA background, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah I don't think that that's true, but, uh, but, but the thing is, is that like he, he claimed that that was channeled into strange adventures. But if you read that book, it dodges what it's trying to say at every turn so you can't pin him down and it's not done in a way where it's left ambiguous so that like the reader can the reader can go like oh well what you know does he feel this way or does he feel that way no he clearly feels a certain way but doesn't feel comfortable actually expressing that and so anytime there's a chance to to be political or take a stand he sidesteps it or makes it about something else and I feel like that's the story with – sorry that I'm, like, going off on a rant here. But, like, that was the story right, with Dennis Heroes Miller. in Crisis. <laughs> and, babe, um, that, that's, going back to, <laughs> that's going back to uh, John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band, babe. Um, <laughs> that's that's going back to um, Heroes in oh, Thank Heroes God in Zach Crisis. is here. Zach would have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> Yeah, he'd be like, shut up, Grandpa. Um, <laughs> hey, we're just referencing um, the late 80s Weekend Update host. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, like, I, I've brought this up so many times about Heroes in Crisis, where, like, this oh, this book was supposed to say something about uh, trauma, about the way that heroes deal with violence. When it came right down to it, yes some of that stuff was in the plot. It didn't really deal with it though. The same way that, that, that strange adventures isn't really dealing with, um, the idea that Adam strange is a, is a war criminal or not. It's using that to, um, ignite a plot and I'm saying this without getting to the end of the series yet. I, I I always think it can turn this around, but like Heroes in Crisis didn't, you know. It's I just see it dodging. I see it dodging the question. Now instead of it being about what Adam Strange did, um, in the context of war on this planet, it becomes about uh, his daughter that was killed or missing or whatever. You know, it becomes about something about him and not about the people that he. Uh, the external people that he necessarily affected uh, with Rorschach here. If this is angry, well, one issue in, I don't get any of that because it sidesteps the actual politics that it's showing you in the plot. You know, it's the politics is there in the plot. Yes. But these characters that we're with are ciphers, you know, they're not, they're, they're not, I couldn't tell you anything about any of these people, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I, you know, I was gonna push back a little bit, not in defense of King, but just I don't know if everything needs to be 
and this isn't what you were saying. So I, I'm I, I'm not accusing you of saying this, but I feel like there's a big difference between something being political because it's addressing the issue head on versus being political because it makes you think about the issue in a different way. And so I, I don't think that, that this book needs to be political in that he comes out and just says certain things if it's a well-told story that gives you more of an idea of that gives you a, a deeper understanding of the of, of sort of the themes he's going for through these characters where I think that King fucks up though. And I think he always does this is that he does neither of those things. He goes yes. half, he goes halfway with both. I think that there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of, there's a lot of art that's made that's political and that's angry that never raises its voice above a whisper. Right. Be mm -hmm. Because because it, it does so in smart and interesting ways. He doesn't do anything in smart. Everything he does is over the top and blatant, but it's over the top and blatant without ever really getting to the point. So it's it's, it's the worst of both schools to me. Yes. And uh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's really well said, because I, I, I'm not suggesting and I know that you don't think that I meant this. But like, I'm not suggesting that I need him to to write a comic that says Orange Man bad. You know, <laughs> that's the last that's the last thing I want, because like that stuff tires me out, too. But when he's in an interview and maybe it's my problem for accidentally stumbling upon these quotes that drive me nuts all the time. But when he's in a when he's in a an interview and he talks about the state of the world and how angry he is and how angry people are and how crazy everything is. I, I don't need him to explicitly say uh, <laughs> Rorschach is freaking Donald Trump. You know, I don't need him to do that. But what I need him to do, I think a little more is be clear. I don't need him to insert himself into these comics, but I do need, I do need characters for whom, um, I understand what's driving them politically. If it's going to be a political story, you know, mm -hmm. um, I need, I need him to not be dodging, be dodging the point at every turn. Like you said, you know, he never gets to the point. Um, and he's not even doing like the, the annoying dialogue ticks in here that dance around the point, you know, he's just not, it's one it's one issue, but he's just not getting into it. And then when he has to tie in Rorschach to all of this mess, then there's all this baggage that comes along with it where you're thinking about Watchmen and you're thinking about the context of that. And you're trying to figure out how this fits in with that world. It's it's just not it's not it's not for me at the end of the day either. So I guess, you know, anything I would say about it is colored by that too. And I can admit that. Yeah, but I, I don't think that necessarily I don't think something being not for you means that you can't appreciate it or that you can't yeah. have an opinion about it just because it's not meant for you. Um and so like you know I just what I'm what I'm trying to figure out, and I know I know that I'm coming at this particular part of the conversation from a very different place than you are. I really enjoyed the Watchmen television show, and I know that you did not. 
Mm-hmm. Did you ever finish it or no? No. I didn't think so. And I feel like that show, every couple of episodes sort of resets the expectations for itself. I think it ends in a very different place than it begins. And it's possible that King is going to do that here. I don't deny that there's a possibility that he could, uh, you know, make the story something different than what we say it is. But what I thought was interesting about the Watchmen TV show was that it was really more about how you live in a world after Watchmen happens. And I feel like this this has no this asks no such questions. This is just wouldn't it be cool if Rorschach was alive in 2020? Yeah. It doesn't even begin to get deeper than that. And it just drives me crazy. Yeah. I have uh, two kind of um, fun notes, if we want to end on that. Sure, baby. There's one panel where uh, it shows uh, Will Meyerson, this this writer-artist character. Um, they're, talk- they're discussing his work, these, like, government agents or whatever. And there's one panel where it's it's him kind of writing or doodling and looking at the camera, and there's a box above his head that says, nothing patterns going nowhere, a lot of nonsense words, boxes of it. And I think, like, well, maybe it's not a Ditko insert. Maybe it's a Tom King insert mm-hmm. character. But then also uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is that one of the cops in this thing, he's the guy who ends up in the hospital bed. Mm-hmm. That's Jonathan Hickman. <laughs> it's 100 percent jonathan hickman yeah I, i'm just scrolling past that now yes that is jonathan hickman oh, poor boy. guy yeah uh, i have i have two more things to uh to say here number one is that jorge fornes does amazing work here this issue looks great even if it's dog shit it looks absolutely great um I uh, I was joking with I think it was Walter about how this wasn't going to be uh, nine panels it was going to be eighteen panels for everything uh, just he was going to do twice as good um, and obviously it's it's not that at all either here but one of the things that I I found very odd was how this is clear like when I, when we start when I started reading this I presumed it was taking place in the seventies. Because it's so clearly everyone is styled as if they are in this, in a film from 1974, mm-hmm. and there's really no purpose for that whatsoever. Um, just, just none. It, it's, yeah, I mean, I guess I guess it's supposed to evoke that feeling, but but then it does. Yeah, then you see billboards and stuff that say 2021, and it's like I don't. There's a disconnect there. Yeah. The only other note I have is that Will Meyerson, the name threw me off for a second because uh, he spells Will with one L, and there is a a current player for the, uh, I believe he still plays for the Padres, Will Myers, who spells it with one L. And that's just a very Mm -hmm. odd connection that it's Will Meyerson and Will Myers and both just one L. So I wonder if Tom King is a secret San Diego Padres fan. Mm. Yeah. Uh, last... Maybe the maybe the Padres have freaking Rorschach on their team. Oh boy, 
I don't like that one bit. Uh, <laughs> one last bit that I forgot to mention from the Legion stuff that's kind of related to this. Did you see that Monster Boy's name is Arun Singh? I didn't take note of that, no. <laughs> like the the former Marvel uh, executive? Oh, I, I, I'm not really familiar. Oh, yeah. Um, hang on, I'm maybe. looking right now. Yeah. Arun, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> When I started at Multiversity, he he's now at Boom, but or at least was at Boom for a while. But he was he was like Marvel's um, big PR guy. Oh, so it's okay. interesting that Monster Boy is saying that. I'm sure he and Bendis were friendly, and that's yeah. why. Oh yeah. But I said Will Myers and Arun Singh, two names I did not expect to see in uh, in comics this week. But there we are. Mm-hmm. Well, folks, thank you for listening. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, do us a favor and tweet at Wilker Fox. Tell him you missed him. Tell us, tell him that you missed him and that you're sick of us doing the show, just the two of us, and let him know that, that you love him. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Brian Needs a Nap. If you need to find Vince, he is, of course, eating a nice can of cold Heinz beans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Imagine all the gobble we could buy with that. <laughs>